Hey everybody, Magnus here. I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer before you listen to uh, this episode that's coming up here in a minute. This was originally intended to be an episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, because as a lot of you may know, at least at one time, I had quite the backlog of unreleased episodes, the idea being that if I record a crap ton of episodes all at once and create a stockpile, in theory, I would always be able to meet a weekly schedule, right? And that was very much the uh, the uh, philosophy that I had prior to taking my hiatus, you know? That was then, this is now, so I don't really have as much of an archive as I used to have, and I doubt I ever will again, to be perfectly honest with you. But anyway, that's not really the point. The point is, this was supposed to be an episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, like I say. Uh, but and, and indeed, Trinus Magnus Punches Reality remains on hiatus, at least at the time that I record this. But considering some of the events that are going on in my personal life right now, it seems that right this minute seems like actually a, a pretty good time to release an episode about the time that Superman and Lois Lane got married totally for real, no dreams, no fake outs, no nothing like that, and just put it all out there right now. So that's what I've decided to do. So anyway... Just so you understand, this was, like I say, meant to be an episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. I am instead releasing it as an episode of Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality. Even though when you think about it, the sort of in-depth discussion of comics that I do in this episode is sort of outside the scope of what Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality is supposed to be. Sometimes a man has to rise above principle. So that's what I'm going to be doing here. So... Anyway, I think that's probably just about enough rambling from me, so enjoy the rest of the episode. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings at a single bound, this amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel, Superman. Possessing remarkable physical strength, Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice, disguised as a mild-mannered newspaper reporter, Clark Kent. Hello, and welcome back to Trentos Magnus Jabs Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And I think a cursory sampling of my podcast would probably lead you to the impression 
the wrong impression, you understand, but nevertheless the impression that I only talk about Superman comics, and that's just not the case. But I do spend quite a bit of my time talking about Superman comics, and so there is a little bit of truth to it, but not total accuracy. And God knows that's what we strive for on Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Anything less than total accuracy is completely unacceptable in general. So, as it goes for today, one of the things that I've wanted to talk about for a really long time now is Mr. and Mrs. Superman. And the reason for that, well, honestly, there are a, a, a ton of reasons for that, but I think maybe one of the most important reasons is I've had a, a very strong affection really for all things Earth 2, but especially the Earth 2 Superman for a pretty long time now. And the reason for that is because I guess just the simple concept of Earth 2 it's one of those things that's always interested me, you know? I mean... For those of you who don't know, and I'm not talking about the New 52 conception of Earth 2, because that's fucking retarded. I'm talking about the pre-crisis Earth 2, and basically it goes a little something-something like this. You know, you've got all of these different parallel universes, for a lack of a better description. Basically, these alternate Earths. And they all have some kind of unique identifying feature about them. For example, you've got Earth Prime, which is more or less the real world. The one that you and I live in, right? Then you have Earth One, and that's basically that's the, the mainstream DC universe as it was through the 70s and a decent chunk of the 80s. Right? Then you've got Earth 2, which is home to the Justice Society. And the thing is, that's not the only difference. Earth 2 has subtle differences between itself and Earth 1. It's not just an alternate universe, or a parallel universe, I should say. This truly is an alternate reality. My impression of Earth 2 is that it... You could fairly argue that it's actually governed by a different set of laws of physics, for example, right? And the conceit of Earth 2 is that the Guardians from Earth 1, the Guardians basically segmented Earth 1 from Earth 2. They dumped all or most things that are magical in nature in Earth 2, such that Earth-1, just about everything that you see has some kind of a scientific explanation to it, right? Now, it may be that kind of fuzzy comic book science, but some type of science to it. Earth-2 is more specifically magical in nature. So that's another difference. It's not just Earth-2 is where the Justice Society of America comes from. It's governed or maybe not governed, but it, it, it's more influenced, one might say, by 
the forces of magic by the super by not so much the supernatural, but I, I suppose the paranormal. Right. Uh, and I mean, like actual sorcery, magic, you know, that type of stuff. Another key difference for whatever this is worth to any of you. Apparently, Quebec is its own independent country. And rather than being just a, a, a Canadian territory, is in fact its own independent country. And apparently there are some Quebecians, I don't know, uh, residents of Quebec who would indeed love to see that happen. But so far it hasn't. So anyway, those things and, and, and other differences really help to distinguish Earth 2 from Earth 1. Now... As it goes for Mr. and Mrs. Superman, just to kind of bring things on topic a little bit, the dawn of the superheroes basically occurred during World War II. And then from there, I guess you could say that the superhero community, they pretty much, you know, had all of their adventures and they ran their course. And then probably it was, I'm going off memory here, but I think Roy Thomas's stories were that, you know, right around the time of the... Uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee was basically going around looking to find communists. They eventually set, uh, set their sights on the Justice Society, and then, in effect, the Justice Society were, in a sense, sort of forced into retirement, you know? It's been forever since I've read that story, so if I'm completely mischaracterizing it, forgive me. But... Then from there, you know, you, you get into, you know, the children of the Justice Society and the adventures that they had, so on and so on and so on, right? And like I say, Earth 2 is one of those things that my sense of it is DC Comics exploited that as much as they could in the 80s, but there came a point when everyone kind of realized that Crisis on Infinite Earths was coming and so, again, I'm just, this is just my sense of what happened. My belief is Earth 2 wasn't as well explored as it might have been. I mean, who's to say that this might not have turned into its own line of comics at some point, instead of being just, you know, one or two titles that DC had going? You know, actually having several titles related to goings-on in Earth 2. Because I, for one, would fucking love to have seen that, you know? There's some amazing ideas with Earth 2. And if you ask me, the advantage that Earth 2 had over Earth 1 is that Earth 1 is the mainstream DC continuity at that time. This, you know, this, for marketing purposes, whenever you thought of DC Comics, Earth 1 is by design what they wanted you to think of you know and so because of that there's a little bit of an enforced status quo in place that and it's got to be there for earth one i mean it's just, it's unavoidable you know there are you know licensing and all of these corporate uh, sort of you know corporate franchising types of things that are going on and all of those things are very much dependent upon a stable and reliable status quo right and so because of that, you might get at times the illusion of change in Earth-1, but really not very much is changing. A good example of what I mean is, 
as much as I love Superman and the Bronze Age, to me, I, I would say that's very close to definitive in my estimation in terms of, you know, who Superman is and what makes him tick. Very close to definitive. But, yeah, you know, Clark had started off as a reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. And then that changed, and then he became a... I, not correspondent, I, I guess a news, a news anchor for a great metropolitan news television show. But he's still doing the trappings of investigative reporting. He still has to, you know, do stories and whatnot. The format has changed, but not the, I, I guess, the, the nuts and bolts of Clark Kent as news journalist. Does that make sense? And so, yes, this is change. And I would say an interesting promotion, especially in the 1970s. But really, it's not that different from what came before. At least it's not as different as it might be, you know. So I'm not trying to, uh, on the one hand, I'm not trying to belittle the Bronze Age because I love and respect it. On the other hand, though, it's not that big a change, you know, when you come right down to it. So you've got that. By way of comparison, Batman fucking died on Earth 2. Died permanently. He was put in the ground. He was mourned. He had a funeral. And he stayed dead. This was permanent. He didn't come back from the dead. There is no Earth 2 story out there where Earth 2 Batman came back to life. Fucker died. And... That was never undone, and that's not something that you can do in mainstream DC continuity. Dick Grayson or whoever can temporarily fill in as Batman, but in mainstream DC continuity, Batman will always be Bruce Wayne, and Bruce Wayne will always be Batman, and that character will always be alive. But in Earth 2, you can do things like kill off Batman and then not have Dick Grayson so much replace him as Batman. He simply operates as Robin in this really god-awful kind of amalgamation of the Robin outfit and the Batman outfit. It's just, it's terrible. It's horrible. But Robin is basically picking up where, where Batman left off, continuing, though, as Robin, not as Batman, right? And you could get things like that. I mean, Earth 2... It could take risks and chances that would never be possible with Earth-1. And a good example of what I mean is Mr. and Mrs. Superman. And as the name might suggest, basically Mr. and Mrs. Superman is the adventures of Superman after he's married Lois Lane, right? Now, to the world, Lois is married to Clark because she can't openly marry Superman. I mean, talk about a death sentence, but... She can openly marry Clark and then secretly marry Superman. And, well, fuck it. I could sit here just getting slap happy over how awesome Earth 2 is. I could do that all day long, but sooner or later I've got to get to the fucking point here. So, anyway, basically, what I'm going to be talking about in this segment is going to be Action Comics number 484 with the cover date of June 1978. 
The story is entitled Superman Takes a Wife. Story is by Carrie Bates. The penciler is Kurt Swan. Inker is Joe Gaella. Letterer is Ben Oda. And the colorist is somebody called T. Wood. So no idea who that is. And then the editor is Julius uh, Schwartz. And I'm actually reading Superman Takes a Wife in my Superman in the 70s trade paperback. And I'm actually just reaching the point where I'm going to have to just at some point or another do an entire fucking show or series of show, perhaps series of shows about Superman in the 70s, because this trade paperback is fucking amazing. And to me, it's everything that made Superman great during the Bronze Age. And obviously, you know, I think the sort of I don't know, the maybe the the glorious ice cream, the best part of the Bronze Age was the 70s. I mean, there is an argument that right about the time you start getting to the mid-80s, maybe it truly was time for a reboot. I mean, again, Eye of the Beholder, you know, everyone, I guess, is going to have their own sort of, their own sort of ideas about that. But anyway, the point is, this is an amazing trade paperback, and it's in this trade paperback that I'm going to be reading Superman Takes a Wife. And just this first splash page uh, in this story, it's a very good indication that this is going to be, this is not just Earth One Superman. I mean, there are a lot of visual clues to that. We'll get more into this as the story wears on, but just literally on this big splash page, you know, you, you understand that this is not Earth One Superman. And you get the, the familiar narration, but with a twist. Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, long ago decided there was one woman in the world he loved so deeply that he had to have her by his side. And so begins the series of astounding events, revealed here for the first time, leading up to the momentous day when Superman takes a wife. So, you flip over to page two, and again, this just serves as a, as a way of setting the scene for you a little bit. You get a picture of the uh, GBS building, and the caption box says, One day, in the massive galaxy building that majestically towers over Midtown Metropolis, Oops. Sorry, wrong Earth. The events you're about to witness never happened to the Superman who is secretly Clark Kent, anchorman for WGBS-TV and the Galaxy Broadcasting System, for he lives on Earth-1 in 1978. The setting of this story is Earth-2, a coexisting world in a parallel dimension. Not identical, but similar to its twin in many respects. It's no surprise, then, that Earth-2 has had a Man of Steel all its own for many years, but... What will surprise you are the spectacular events revolving around the Superman of this story. 
A story that actually occurred once upon a time in Metropolis, long ago and far away. And instead of showing us the GBS building, it shows us the Daily Star building with a giant star at the, across the top. And this is just... Uh, leave it to Kurt Swan. I mean, he shows us the Galaxy building with an airplane flying overhead, a very sleek, modern-for-the-time-looking airplane flying by overhead as a way of showing us where this story does not take place. Then we get a panel showing the Daily Star building with a more antiquated... Uh, looks like this is a four-prop uh, airplane passing by overhead and instantly sets the, I guess, the, the context for this story really, really nicely. But the other thing, and I wouldn't normally comment upon this, but the other thing is that Ben Oda the letterer of this piece, he knew what he needed to do in helping to set a different tone for Earth 2. Because I happen to believe that pre-crisis DC universe is, is this is a, a science fairy tale, you know? And I speak here predominantly of Earth 1. It's a science fairy tale. And so... Whereas in a lot of fairy tales, magic of some kind is usually a driving force to some degree or another. Here it's science, but it's all still fairy tale types of stories, you know? And that to me, honestly, is where DC works best, where it's most effective. And I guess everybody's entitled to have their own opinion, but that one's mine. But when we switch over to Earth 2... Ben Otis, he, he switches over to his lettering for this box here, this caption box that says, Once upon a time, in Metropolis, long ago and far away. And on the one hand, you almost want to say that there's some kind of a Star Wars kind of influence there, because Star Wars was definitely the cat's meow by this point in 1978. So, I don't know, it's just the phrasing of it, I don't know, it just kind of reminds me of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But the, the lettering, and I mean the handwriting on this, uh, for this panel, it's a little more scripty. You know, instead of that usual, you know, Comic Sans type of font that I think a lot of us are just accustomed to seeing now in comics, this is just a little bit more scripty somehow, you know, a little bit more delicate. You could almost picture that this was written with a quill rather than a pen, you know? And just the lettering and the art and the, the architecture of these buildings and the style of the airplane and everything not only puts you in the, I guess, in the mindset of this being a period piece, which it most assuredly is. I mean, this takes place in, it, I, I, I didn't actually think to check, you know, the exact year, like in universe this is taking place, but you can kind of figure... It's taking place sometime in the 1950s, you know? The other thing, though, is that this is just inherently, instead of being a science fairy tale, this is just straight-up fairy tale, you know? No science. And that is going to become a little bit more apparent in just a little while. Let me rephrase that. It's not no science. It's just magic is a little bit more operative here. But anyway, 
It's one of those things, fuck it. It's one of those things, it defies words, but the minute you see it, you get it. So, I guess a, a picture truly does speak a thousand words here. So, anyway. So, you've got Metropolis, and it's under siege by these giant fucking purple robots from... Oh, uh, what was that Fleischer cartoon? Mechanical Monsters, I believe it's called. We have these giant flying purple robots who are buzzing around Metropolis and robbing banks and stuff. And to kind of skip ahead a little bit in the story, they're actually owned, operated, managed, and controlled by, by Colonel Future. And right about now, Colonel Future, he doesn't know but he's pretty sure that he's got the biggest dick in Metropolis because he's able to control and program these giant robots to rob banks and bring them all kinds of loot and stuff. And that ends up getting somewhat challenged here on page three when Superman zips onto the scene and just starts beating the shit out of these robots. Now, guys, if you know anything about my Superman fandom at all, you know very well that if there's one thing that I love seeing in Superman comics, it's a shirt rip. But if there are two things that I love seeing in a Superman comic, it's Superman beating the piss out of robots. And we get a pretty decent helping of that on uh, page three. Superman knocks one of their heads off, literally. Then he grabs it and then starts spinning it around and uses it to beat the crap out of the other robots. I mean, this is fucking incredible. I love this. Superman versus giant robots. And so he just flings this this robot into the other robots. And Colonel Future, who's watching from afar, is basically just thinking to himself, you know, fucking shit. You know, I, I spend all of this time, all of this money beating the piss out of uh, Superman, or at least trying to, but fucking nothing works. It's like this. Uh, uh, what do I got to do? You know? And what ends up coming out just in the course of conversation is that, you know what? Superman has a weakness. Everybody has a weakness. So all we need to do is just figure out what Superman's weakness is, and then we can nail him with it. Dun, dun, dun! So, meanwhile, back at the Daily Star building, Superman returns... Uh, uh, returns to work, changes clothes in the storeroom, bullshits with Jimmy for a while. Then Lois sneaks into the storeroom and retrieves a camera that she had hidden there that basically may have uh, taken pictures of Clark when he was changing into Superman or Superman when he was changing into Clark. But Superman knows what he's up against with Lois and knows that he that she's always out trying to prove that, yes, Clark Kent is, in fact, Superman. And so he made sure to bathe the camera with x-rays. And the end result of this is that every single frame of film is completely fucked up. Now, the film developer says fogged up, but I think we all know what he really meant. So, elsewhere... Colonel Future and his minions meet with the wizard, who has, as the name would suggest, I mean, he really does live up to his billing here. He has magical powers. I mean, the fucker's a wizard, so what do you want to hear? Anyway, 
just to kind of show that, you know, hey, I, I've got a big dick too, Mr. Colonel Future, sir. You're not the only guy in this room who can do some serious shit. He gives the appearance of having turned the room upside down, even though gravity is still working. Which is an interesting trick. Anyway, yada yada yada. Colonel Future basically bribes the wizard into helping with taking Superman down once and for all. And to sort of dangle a carrot, since there's really not much else that Colonel Future can use to negotiate, he offers to give the wizard the Glastonbury Wand, a priceless relic reputed to have been crafted by Merlin himself. And the, wi the wizard says, All right, look, you dumb son of a bitch. You couldn't possibly have known this, but I actually stole that wand from the British Museum last month. To which Colonel Future replies, Ho, 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 that's what you think, my magical friend. In fact, what you stole was an ingenious fake planted by my organization after we lifted the real wand a year ago. And the wizard concedes the point on that one because he, he says, That would tend to explain why the wand I appropriated hasn't been receptive to my spells. So he tests out the new wand and he says, Okay, you got yourself a deal. I will take Superman out once and for all. So, elsewhere, the next day, and on page 9, Colonel Future and his gang of hooligans open fire on an armored car, and Superman, or I should say Clark, barely manages to push Lois Lane out of the way before he darts down an alley and starts changing into his Superman outfit. And as he does so, he he uh, he does a shirt rip and the force of his arm just being pulled outward elbows a would-be mugger right in the chest and takes him out of action pretty much for good it looks like he doesn't look like he's getting up anytime soon and you get the impression that it's like Clark didn't even know the guy was there you know and i don't know he just he doesn't pay he doesn't pay the mugger any attention. So, anywho, Superman swings into action right as the, the, the Colonel Future gang are trying to make their escape, having robbed the armored car. Superman grabs them, melts their, the, uh, those metal rocket-looking thingies on their, uh, on their arms. He melts those together. And it's right around then that the wizard magically summons uh, Superman to a patch of bleak countryside southwest of Metropolis. So, as you can imagine, Superman's really not all that happy about having been dragged away from his work like this. And basically proceeds to start talking a salty line of trash to the wizard saying... Dude, I'm going to kick your ass for doing this. You better run and hide, mister. Run and hide. Because what's going to happen is, once I get out of this, I'm going to beat your ass so badly that your own mother is not even going to recognize you. I'm going to kick your ass so hard, it's going to be up between your fucking shoulders. Okay? I'm going to tear your arm off. I'm going to beat you with it. I'm going to tear open your stomach, and I will strangle you with your own fucking intestines. Okay, I'm going to rip off your toenails. Anyway, so you get the idea. And 
the wizard says, you know what? No, I don't think you're going to do that. Abracadabra, Superman vanishes. Well, the wizard just pats off his hands, says, oh, I guess that's the end of that. And turns around, walks off. There's a smoking, scorching Superman symbol laying on the ground. And after the wizard has made his exit, Clark Kent slowly claws his way out of the Superman symbol. Days pass, and now we're on page 13. Days pass, and no Superman appears to challenge the rampant crime in Metropolis. And George Taylor is basically losing his shit over it, as I believe the clinical expression. He says, confound it! Where is Superman? The city really needs him. To which Clark replies, we did all right before he appeared, and we'll still manage. All we need is courage, Taylor. And Lois doesn't come right out and say so here, but you kind of get the idea her panties are getting a little bit wet because she says, can that be Clark Kent talking? And it is indeed. In the following weeks, the new Clark shows himself to be a dauntless foe of crime. And we see a a, a, a close-up of a, of a Daily Star newspaper headline that says, Star Reporter Leads Raid on Gambling Den. And then a sidebar item says, Superman still missing. Clark even investigates the disappearance of the Man of Steel. He talks to Underworld contacts. He, he, he meets with scary guys and scary alleys. Uh, he talks to women of dubious virtue, the whole thing. And he just can't seem to find Superman. And when no conclusive evidence as to Superman's whereabouts is found, he says... Blast it, Lois! I still can't find what happened to Superman. And we do need him against the CF gang's futuristic weaponry. And Lois replies, You've done what you could to battle the underworld more than most people would ever attempt. To which Clark replies, Maybe I do need to relax a little. How about dinner and a show? Oh, I just love that, Clark. Because, you know, when I get stressed and overworked, of course, female co-workers tell me, you know, settle the fuck down. But I don't ask them out over it, so I don't know what Clark's deal is. But who knows? The dates become more frequent and romance blossoms. Clark says, sweetheart, tonight I thought we'd take a drive in the country. And Lois is ready for pretty much anything that Clark wants to do, as, be as becomes apparent when they're actually on the drive out in the country. And Clark proposes marriage to Lois, to which she replies, I've been hoping to hear those words. Yes, 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 I will marry you. To which she thinks to herself, to me, you'll always be a Superman. And so not very long later, Lois and Clark get married, and then they go on their honeymoon, which is just about the time all hell breaks loose, because on page 15, the CF gang has tracked Clark down and in this just really weird-looking submarine-looking thing, they blast Clark with a machine gun. Now, guys, in case it hasn't been made clear yet, this is a Clark who has forgotten the fact that he is Superman, thanks to the wizard. But I would assume his ears are still working well enough, and his sense of touch is working well enough, and his eyes are working well enough. All of which raised the question of how in the fucking hell did he not see the submarine 
hear the bullets, feel the bullets. I mean, Lois was standing on the shore and she saw the whole thing. She heard the whole thing. So why didn't Clark? I mean, it's one of those things that it doesn't really pay to think about, but at the same time, doesn't exactly make a whole lot of sense either. So Lois is at this point concerned that Clark might be deathly injured, but Surprise, surprise, thank heavens, he's unscathed, not even the slightest nick, but how? That mini-sub sprayed his back with enough firepower to sink a PT boat. Later that night, while Clark sleeps, Lois breaks a pair of scissors over his hair, trying to cut it and find out whether or not he truly is Superman, and if he's somehow forgotten about it. When the happy couple return to Metropolis following the end of their honeymoon, Lois starts investigating all the people who have claimed credit for the disappearance of Superman, one of which is the Wizard. Lois meets with the Wizard, and he says, yeah, look, basically, defeating Superman was just about the stupidest fucking thing I've ever done because it's pretty much undermined and totally destroyed my magical who's-he-what's-his-mojo sauce such that I can't even do simple spells anymore. I mean, here I am. I'm pointing this wand at this cup of water. I may as well be pointing my own dick at this cup of water for all the magic I'm able to do. This is just fucking useless. Defeating Superman has completely destroyed my self-confidence. And with it, it's destroyed my ability to use magic. And Lois replies, I believe you, wizard. And I also believe you're telling the truth about Superman. How'd you like a chance to prove to everybody that you're the one who defeated Superman? Because that's going to be the magical shot in the arm he needs in order to get his magical whoozy what's his mojo with cream sauce back. So, later, Lois calls a press conference, introduces the wizard as the man who defeated Superman, and right there, with news cameras and news reporters all watching, the wizard unmakes his spell and restores... Clark's memory, which is just about all that needed to be done, Superman flies out of the burned-into-the-ground Superman symbol in that desolate piece of forested, wooded area in southwest, uh, on the southwest region of Metropolis, drops in on the press conference, and I'm not kidding, bitch-slaps the wizard straight across the face. I mean, we're talking like full pimp salad five to the eye knocks his ass out and takes the takes his magical wand of who's he what's us and hides it on the moon because let's face it you got to do something to keep the wand away from the wizard and here's the thing colonel future is watching this entire thing on tv and basically says yeah i think i'm gonna hurl this is the end of my operations i uh, Clark Kent was, was bad enough, but Superman, this is going to be the end of everything. I'm fucked. And indeed he is. So later, Superman flies back to the apartment and finds Lois packing up her suitcase, basically on the proposition that, look, dude, you would never have married me if you were in your right mind. If it wasn't for the wizard, you and I wouldn't have just be we we wouldn't be just getting back from our honeymoon put it that way superman replies you're probably right on the other hand if it weren't for the wizard i never would have had the chance to realize how much i've always loved you 
So let's get married. And Lois is a little bit puzzled by that, but Superman clarifies it by saying, you and I are going to become man and wife. Kryptonian style. Now, in case you thought Kryptonian style uh, required one of them, or maybe both, to wear a leather outfit with a ball gag, we'll get to that. Superman flies Lois to the, sec the fabulous Secret Citadel. And this is, yeah, this is actually in the mountains near Metropolis, and that's where the Secret Citadel is hidden. Now, I don't remember much of anything ever really being established in terms of what the Secret Citadel is, uh, what bullshit Superman has stored there. I don't know why, but I've always been slightly reluctant to say, well, this is the Fortress of Solitude, just with a different name. I've always wondered that there are maybe small differences, maybe major differences, but still differences between the Secret Citadel in, uh, on Earth 2 and the Fortress of Solitude on Earth 1. Again, there's nothing I can pin that on other than my own supposition. So, anyway... Superman says to Lois, There it is, Lois, and you'll be interested in the special editions I've made since I learned of my heritage. And then there's a note from the editor saying, The Earth 2 Superman never knew he came from Krypton until he set out to trace the origin of the first kryptonite that he encountered, as recorded in Superman number 61. And this is kind of where I need to get off the bus that, uh, that Carrie Bates is driving here, because... I realize it's kind of convenient shorthand to say that Earth 2 is basically the Golden Age comics that that uh, DC, first, well, not DC, but whatever, first started coming out. You know, action comics, detective comics, basically the entire first wave. Unbeknownst to anybody, that was actually Earth 2. And that whenever we read actual Earth 2 stories, we can kind of assume that the Golden Age stories happened, and we read about them un not knowing that they were, in fact, Earth 2. And I've always kind of had trouble reconciling that since, yes, there are a lot of similarities, but I've never been completely comfortable saying that the Golden Age is basically Earth 2, you know? I've just never bought into that. And it also kind of, not trying to make this into too much of a continuity sticky wiki, but I mean, where exactly then does Earth 2 end, right? What's the final issue of Superman from Earth 2 in the monthly title Superman or in Action Comics? When did we see the last of that character? And when did we start seeing the Silver Age Superman? When did that trans transition take place? So what I've always thought is that maybe the smarter way of doing this would be to say that Earth 2 is extremely Golden Age influenced, and you can kind of assume that things that happened in the Golden Age happened in Earth 2. But to say that one is the exact same fucking thing as the other one, I just don't know if I believe that. So, anyway. It's nitpicky, though. 
So that pretty much takes us over to page 22, where we see Superman and Lois standing in front of this giant statue of Jor-El and Laura, not Lara, L-A-R-A. This is Laura, L-O-R-A. And Superman says, In the name of Rao, who kindled the sun, I take you, Lois Lane, as my wife. And Lois says, In the name of Rao, who shaped the moons, I take you, Kalal, as my husband. The end. This is just a fucking incredible story. And the reason I wanted to read it from Superman in the 70s as opposed to the actual comic is, number one, the actual comic is buried under a bunch of other bullshit right now, and I just didn't want to fish it out. The other thing, though, is that Superman in the 70s, you know, all the stories in Superman in the 70s were recolored. Now, the minute you hear the the, the expression recolored, you instantly want to assume this kind of fancy schmancy modern style of of coloring and it's not this is this it's a very simple very plain and soft spoken type of recoloring job it doesn't call too much attention to itself but it is recolored and the, it doesn't look modern it just looks good you know and honestly, this is the way that I think all comics, including modern comics, this is the way that they need to look. You know, this type of coloring. So, I really dig that. The other thing, though, that, I mean, apart from Superman, you know, zipping around and it's Earth 2 and it's just fucking cool and all that stuff. Apart from Superman smashing robots and all of that stuff, which is also fun. Apart from the fact that this is the 50s, which I love. You know, that's a good era for Superman to live in. Especially a more like an older, wiser, more seasoned type of Superman. That also works for me. But the other thing I like is the sort of... the implied power level that this Superman operates at. In my mind, this is a very Fleischer type of Superman power level that we're dealing with here, you know? I've always thought that the Silver Age Superman is basically the ultra-powerful super-god the Bronze Age, not all that far behind, Denny O'Neill notwithstanding. And then you get into the Burn Age, where Superman's powers have been noticeably reduced as compared to what they had been previously. And here, I think that this is a Superman who's less powerful even than the Burn Age. He's got super strength, but I doubt he could do half the shit that the Burn Age Superman does. He can fly, but I I am not at all prepared to say that he can break the sound barrier. He can move at super speed, but honestly, what is super speed at this point? I mean, like 100 miles an hour or 200 or something like that. So on and so on and so on. So he's basically powerful enough to get the job done, but he's not so ridiculously powerful that somebody would would say that this Superman is hard to write because he's just got so many powers. How do you challenge? You know, none of that bullshit. So... I just, I like, I like that kind of Fleischer style power limitations of Superman where he can fly, but it's not as, this is not a guy who's going to fly so fast he can um, break the time barrier, just for example, right? So little things like that. Now, excuse me, 
while I get a sip off of this massive two-liter bottle of Dr. Pepper that I've got right here. <clears throat> and yes, I'm drinking directly out of that two-liter bottle. Also, I want to get a drag off of my electronic cigarette. I mean, I've been talking a lot here, guys. Go and just bear with me here. Only take a sec. All right, one more. All right, very good. Ah, right by my heart. All right, so Superman marries Lois Lane. And guys, as with Batman dying, this is not something that Earth 2 is going to magically undo. There's not going to be a super kiss where Loa, uh, Lois forgets everything that happened. Uh, forgets that she knows Superman's secret identity, all that stuff. She's now in it for the long haul. And the reason this works for me is, like I say, you know, this is the character truly making forward progress. You know, it's not the illusion of change anymore. This is real change. You know, this character's life is going to be substantially different now as compared to what it was before. And I just like the fact that Earth 2 could do that, you know, that it had that kind of flexibility to it. And that honestly, the editors and uh, publishers and whatnot believed in Earth 2 as a concept enough to run with crazy, wacky concepts like this idea of letting Superman get married, letting Lois know that Clark Kent is Superman, killing off Batman, you know, things like that. This is... In a weird kind of way, I'd almost want to say that this is Ultimate Marvel before there really was such a thing. Because when you think about it, Ultimate Marvel, what I think a lot of people cherish on some level and kind of resent on the other is that Ultimate Marvel could go in whatever direction it needed to go in, you know? And it didn't have to abide by the Marvel 616 Universe's dogma, you know? And that same thing is true of Earth 2, you know? That's one of the things that I really appreciate uh, 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 about it. So, this is just, just a phenomenal, fun story. And, hand on heart, this is one of those things that I truly do believe. You could have made an ongoing series, uh, a monthly series out of Earth 2 Superman. And we're not going to get one. Not exactly. But in the next segment, I'm going to talk about what we did get. And that's where the whole Mr. and Mrs. Superman thing starts to come into play a little bit. But that's going to be in the next segment. For right now, I need a break. So be right back after these messages. The hiatus is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? 
Magnus Talks About Smallville, my podcast's usual discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, it's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is, and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to twotruefreaks.com. dramatic reading what you're gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk I'm a get 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 you drunk get you love drunk off my hump 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 my lovely little lumps. Check it out. I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen, baby Sharon, all their money got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans. True religion. I say no, but they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on demonstrating. Okay, I'm back now, and I'm continuing a little bit of a discussion I've got going about Mr. and Mrs. Superman. Now, again, this just speaks to, I guess, not just my affection for Earth 2, and specifically Superman of Earth 2, but 
A little bit of the reaction to Action Comics number 484, Superman Takes a Wife. Apparently this was an extraordinarily well-received story. The reason for that is because Mr. and Mrs. Superman very, very briefly became a backup feature in Superman. That is to say, adjectiveless Superman, the monthly comic book called Superman, right? Didn't last all that long as a backup. In short order, it was actually moved over to Superman Family, but for two glorious issues, yes, Mr. and Mrs. Superman was, in fact, a backup in the monthly adjectiveless Superman comics. So, the reason for this is, basically, what we're told is that the uh, the story, Superman Takes a Wife, was so popular that DC, or at least the Superman editorial office, they saw a market of sorts in continuing this this story. You know, what happened to Superman and Lois after the wedding. And when you think about it, there are quite a lot of, of different things that you can deal with not least of which is goings-on with Colonel F uh, Future, because if you remember, in Superman Takes a Wife, the wizard gets taken out of action, but not too much of anything really happens with Colonel Future. And so it's a pretty logical thing to explore, you know, goings-on with this sort of Cold War between Superman and Colonel Future. So in relation to that, this is Superman number... This is Superman number uh, 327, and again, this isn't you know the the entire uh, the the entire uh, comic Superman 327. This is just the Mister and Mrs. Superman backup, entitled Two Can Die as Cheaply as One. Writer is Carrie Bates, penciler is Kurt Schaffenberger, inker is Joe Gaella, letterer is Gene Schneck, colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Editor is Julius Schwartz. And the little caption up at the top says, Welcome to Earth 2, a world amazingly similar to the Earth we're all familiar with, yet with surprising differences. For example, Clark Kent works for the Daily Star, as does Lois Lane, but at home, it's a different story. For Lois and Clark are Mr. and Mrs. Superman. And the pitch of the story is actually pretty straightforward. Basically, Lois and Clark are moving in together because, you know, now that they're married, it's time to take the plunge, so to speak. And so they're supervising the movers, getting all of their shit inside of their apartment, but their sofa suspended several stories above the ground. It looks like two stories or three stories uh, above the uh, above the street one of the cables snaps and the sofa comes plummeting down to the ground and and Clark blocks all of the shrapnel and damage and shit that's coming off of the I can't say exploding sofa but it's basically splintering into pieces and sending fragments all over the place and so he blocks uh, Lois basically from injury is what it comes down to and so the mover rushes over and says, "Holy shit, that was one that that was a close call. You two are lucky to be alive." And Lois pretty much goes off on the guy, saying, "Well, yeah, no thanks to your shitty equipment. When's the last time you had that that winch fully checked out?" And 
I don't know if it's an intentional thing or not, but basically what you have is a little bit of a, uh, of a situation here where Clark and Lois are kind of doing this good cop, bad cop thing. I just, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's an orchestrated thing, but it is a difference in, uh, in, in character between, between the two of them that Clark is a little bit more gentle and easygoing. Whereas Lois will have your balls in a sling if you set her off about something. And I don't know, just neat little character moment here. Just blink and you miss it right there on page two, the first panel. But it does say something about about the characters. So anyway, so the mover basically says, hey, look, you know, the company's going to reimburse you. We do have, we, I'm, we, you know, we do have insurance. You can buy another couch, but... Obviously, you can't get another life. And so, anyway, there's some back and forth about that. Lois and Clark go inside the apartment building, and that's when you start getting uh, a better look at the damage done to Clark's wardrobe. Specifically, his jacket and his his shirt are both pretty much smithereens because they've been shredded to pieces by the shrapnel and whatnot that was blown off of the uh, sofa whenever it made contact with the pavement. So, a little bit of romantic this and that between Lois and Clark in the elevator. And then when they get back into their, uh, almost said their hotel, when they get back to their apartment, Clark Clark changes clothes and basically says, you know, I really do need to get going, but while I'm gone and now that you're part of the team, why don't you start thinking up a couple of handy little excuses that I can use to vanish into thin air whenever danger occurs so that way i can switch over to superman and you can cover for me lois says that she's going to do just that and so clark's thinking to himself and if this seems a bit like exposition well i guess it is and also a little bit of foreshadowing going on here clark thinks to himself i don't like sticking lois with the job of supervising the movers by herself but i've got a job to do Today I'm wrapping up my latest expose on the activities of the notorious Colonel Future Gang. And in relation to that, one of the the, uh, movers speaks into a walkie-talkie, and he says, Here comes Kent, Colonel Future. And Colonel Future, on the other side of the walkie-talkie, says, Andy, you're positive you had time to properly install the explosive device while he was upstairs? To which Andy replies, No sweat, Colonel. Soon as the sucker gets behind the wheel and turns his ignition key, kaboom! Clark Kent's next and last story will be in tomorrow's obituary column. And the, I guess, words are sort of put into action here because Clark hops in the car, turns the key to the ignition, the car blows up real good, and Andy turns around and it's important to, mem- to mention that he had his back turned this entire time. Andy turns back around to face the smoking car and sees Clark coming out of the apartment building, swinging his car keys, and only just now noticing that his car is smithereens, which leaves all of us to wonder just what the fuck just happened. So Clark thinks to himself, at this rate... I'll be out of blue suits by tomorrow, but what choice do I have? The split second the explosion occurred, I zoomed out of the car at invisible super speed, 
after a sweep of telescopic vision revealed all eyes in the vicinity were turned elsewhere at the crucial instant. And he thinks to himself, if my would-be assassin is among the handful of bystanders, at least I know he wasn't watching me when I turned the key. We see Superman zoom into the apartment, grab a, ch a uh, change of clothes, zip back out the window. And he, keep in mind, he's wearing full Superman outfit, but also Clark Kent's glasses. That's how unexpected all of this bullshit really was. So, back in the present moment, we see a gun being held to Lois Lane's hand and an off-panel voice saying, Remember what I said, sweetie. No tricks, or I ventilate your pretty little head. Start talking. So, Lois sticks her head out the apartment window and calls out to Clark saying, Oh, Clark, Clark, darling, could you come back up here for a minute? It's very important. And Clark is fast enough on the uptake to realize, you know, I know that we're newlyweds and I'm pretty sure I know what she really wants, but, or at least I know what she would normally really want, but that isn't it in this case. Something's wrong. My super hearing is picking up a slight quavering in Lois's voice as though she's trembling. A minute later, Clark comes through uh, the door, and he says, Here I am, honey. You having any other problems with the movers? And Andy, it looks like, says, You might say that, Kent. Only thing is, the problem is you. And Lois says, Clark, these movers are not movers at all. They are, in fact, assassins from the CF gang. CF stands for Colonel Future. That means that falling couch was no accident. And one of the unnamed movers says, you said it, baby. That was assassination plan one. Plan two was the usually reliable bomb-in-the-car routine, but somehow you managed to luck out of that one, too. So Andy adds, which forces us to blow cover and resort to plan three. So Lois is listening to all of this stuff and looking at Clark and thinking, the fuck's wrong with Clark? Why doesn't he do something? There are any number of ways that... And Clark is thinking, there are any number of ways I could get out of this uh, without giving away my secret identity, but since Lois boasted about her ingenuity in such a crisis, let's see if she can come up with something before I... And that's pretty much when his sort of inner monologue breaks off, and Andy starts making fun of the two of them, saying, Look, Sid, ain't that sweet? The wife slid behind Kent for protection. And Sid says, Hey, that gives me an idea. This 45 automatic is just powerful enough to make it work. I'll use one slug to kill them both. And Andy replies, Terrific. You're going to show the Daily Star that... Dun-dun-dun! Two can die as cheaply as one. And Lois, I guess at this point, is verging on panic, saying, Wait, please, before you shoot, can I say one last thing to my husband? And Andy says, One thing, Mrs. Kent, and make it snappy. And so Lois tears Clark's shirt open and says, Okay, go get him, Superman. And Clark is, needless to say, a little bit miffed about that, thinking, Great Scott! Lois must be out of her mind. Now that Lois has panicked and blown my cover, there's nothing left for me to do but follow through and finish the job with a blast of super breath. And Sid 
Sid and Andy both are basically kind of freaking out. Holy shit, he really is Superman. And so Sid says to himself, man, what a fucking lousy assignment Colonel Future handed to us knocking off Superman. Andy replies, he's kill proof. And so Lois is actually thinking a little bit further ahead than anybody first thought because she's on the intercom pressing the button saying, Clark, are you down there? You said you'd be waiting down in the lobby. Clark! And that's when it kind of sinks in for Clark. Forgive me, teammate, for thinking you'd panicked, he thinks to himself. You ki- you came through with flying colors. Now that I understand her, her clever plan, I can follow through by throwing Clark's voice via super ventriloquism, my personal favorite superpower. And so Clark throws his voice down to the lobby, or at least to the to the little comm system they have there. It's not really clear which of those it is. And he says, I'm still here, darling. I'm glad to hear you're okay. You want me to come up? And Lois replies, no, wait right there. We'll be right on down. And that's when the CF gang takes the bait. Somehow Kent found out there was a contract on him and got Superman to impersonate him until he caught us red-handed. And then the other one says, Andy says, Superman and Mrs. Kent played us for suckers. And Superman thinks to himself, which is precisely what Lois expected him to think. So, 53 seconds later, in the lobby, after a surge of super speed and the use of still another blue suit, Lois drags the CF gang out of the elevator and says, To Clark, she says, Hi, sweetheart, we left Superman upstairs. He said he had to take off on another job. And Clark says, I hope you remembered to thank him for saving our lives. Lois kisses him full on the mouth and says, I sure did, and I hope you remember to get my name right, Lois Lane Kent, when you write up this story for the Daily Star. The end. And I just dig this story. First off, there's a lot to be said for, I don't know, this sort of older, wiser, more mature type of Superman. Existing specifically in the 1950s. I don't know why, but I just like this take on Superman. I like, I like this setup, you know? This is just, this is a fun story. And... I think a crucial part to that is the fact that the art is done by uh, Kurt Schaffenberger as opposed to Kurt Swan. Now, look, guys, I love Kurt Swan, all right? To me, there are two types of Superman artists. You've got Kurt Swan, and then you've got everyone else. I mean, to me, Swan's pretty much definitive. You know, I'm not taking anything away from other Superman artists. I'm just saying that I'm a Swan guy. You know, but this story, I think, would be just fundamentally different if it was drawn by by Swan. It Schaffenberger just brings a sort of, I don't even know what to call it, a slightly cartoony and more sort of fun and whimsical type of approach. Superman Takes a Wife was, that was a big story. It was powerful. It was dramatic, you know, and that's fine. But Schaffenberger just gives this more of a of a sort of a a fun 
type of tone, you know? There's nothing wrong with big and epic and exciting and all that stuff, you know? But there's a lot to be said for you know, just fun and lighthearted, too. And that, to me, is where Kurt Schaffenberger really excels, you know? And so, I don't know. I just, I, I think that that was the right way to go with this story. And another kind of neat thing was this sort of ongoing gag of of Clark's business suits just getting the shit beaten out of him first by the the crashing sofa and then uh, by the exploding car and then when the CF gang opens fire on him his suit is then full of bullet holes and I don't know why that's just that's just a nice fun little gag you know for this for this story so Overall, this is just this is a ton of fun, and to me, this is just a, a solid reminder to us of just everything that comics can be, you know? I just, I really dig it. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Dr. Pepper here. All right. So, that just about takes us over to Superman, number 329. The Mr. and Mrs. Superman backup story from this issue is entitled Secret of the Talking Car. Writer is Carrie Bates. Penciler is Kurt Schaffenberger. Inker is Frank Giacoa. Letterer, Todd Klein. Colorist is Adrienne Roy. Editor is, as always, Julius Schwartz. So, you've got... Clark and Lois, basically, they're on their way back to their apartment, driving back right now, and they've got a brand new car. And the reason for that is because in the last story, their car exploded real good all over the pavement. So, obviously, they, they had to buy a new one. <clears throat> all Clark can talk about is this new car and how awesome it is. Uh, you know, good fuel economy, the thing corners like it's on rails. This, I mean, he's basically just doing that kind of rah, rah, rah guy thing where we just enjoy cars. And Lois, you get the idea, she doesn't want to talk about cars. As a matter of fact, she doesn't really want to talk. She wants to, shall we say, do something else. And she says, sorry, sweetheart, I just can't get too excited about a piston engine, four tires, and two tons of sheet metal. I mean, to me, a car is a car is a car. But I'll say one thing. It sure smells terrific. Now I know what they mean when they say there's nothing like the scent of a new car. And I should probably mention that they talked about earlier in the car ride, they were talking about how, yes, Clark is in fact Superman, and that's going to become important in just a few moments. So, several hours later, into the night, Clark is standing by the window, staring down into the street, and just admiring the gleam of the metal of his new car in the moonlight. Lois finds that kind of amusing, saying, Clark, what are you doing looking out the window? If you have to admire the car from our bedroom, why don't you just look through the walls with your x-ray vision? To which Clark replies, that might spoil the effect of the moonlight gleaming off the metal. And 
Lois says, I don't believe this. I'm watching a man who's seen the wonders of the universe go gaga over an ordinary car. And Clark replies, my dear, you think just because I can fly and bend steel in my bare hands and fly so fast around the planet that I can actually travel through time that I can change the course of mighty rivers? Or the fact that I'm more powerful than a, than a locomotive. Do you think all of those things mean that I can't appreciate the latest advances in automotive styling and engineering? That's a beautiful machine that we've got out there. And Lois, needing to change the subject maybe to something else, says, And pray tell, what about the beauty in here? And Clark leans over, sticks his tongue down her throat, and says, I have only one answer for that, and turns out the light. Mm. Ooh, brown chicken, brown cow. Comes the dawn in more ways than one. And Lois says, Sweetheart, have you seen my tape recorder? The miniature one I always keep in my purse? Clark, proving that there is some value in being married to Superman, uh, x-rays the apartment at super speed and then says, Bad news, honey. I don't see it anywhere. And I'm x-ray scanning the entire apartment. And Lois says, fucking shit, where could I have possibly left this? Then she looks out the window and realizes, you know what, they may have other problems because she says, Clark, by any chance, did you get up in the middle of the night and go out for another drive in our new car? To which Clark replies, no, of course not. Lois says, well, I was afraid you'd say that because the only other thing I can think is, great, Scott, our car's been stolen. The parking lot is empty, and I'm not kidding. The next panel is Clark reaching over, grabbing a Superman cape. The next panel after that is him wearing the full Superman outfit. And then Lois uh, says, I've got a little bit more bad news. The thieves might very well know the car belongs to Superman. And rather than smacking her across the room because this was the 1950s, Superman says, what? Lois, you're not making any sense. Lois says, dude, I wish I wasn't. I just remembered where I left my tape recorder. It was between us on the front seat of the car. And Superman says, oh, shit, I've got a bad, bad feeling about it. Are you telling me that the recorder was on while we were talking in the car? Lois says, I don't know. But... I do remember that we talked about the fact that you are Superman. And Lois says, look, dude, you know my habit of flipping that thing on every time a new idea comes to me. I just, I want to get it on tape right away. And if those car thieves turn on the recorder, it'll be curtains. Curtains, you hear me? Curtains. And so Superman puts on a brave face and he says, hey, hey, keep your chin up. There may also be nothing on the tape that's worth worrying about, but we're not gonna wor- we're not gonna solve anything just standing here worry worrying about it. Give me a kiss before I fly out of here. So the kiss I'm guessing happens off panel because the very next panel is Superman thinking to himself, you know, I wish I were half as confident as I made Lois think I was. In the city the size of Metropolis, over a hundred cars are stolen every day. I may be Superman, but even my superpowers have their limits. And the prospect of my double identity floating around on a tape recorder isn't exactly boosting my spirits. But might as well begin the search with a telescopic scan. And then, 
not far away, the scene cuts to a chop shop where a bunch of car thieves are giving a stolen car a, a, a new paint job when all at once, all of their gear and their equipment, it's like it comes to life. They get paint sprayed in their own faces and it's like a hurricane sort of breaks out in the middle of, uh, of their garage. And before you even know what's going on, Superman swoops out of nowhere and bashes their heads together, calls in the police to have them take off the thieves, but thinks to himself, we've uncovered 10 stolen cars that had been stolen over the, over the past 24 hours by this ring of professional car thieves, but none of them have been my new sedan. Even if I could crack open a dozen car theft operations, I still might not come across my car. And the more I think about what Lois might have recorded on her tape, the worse things look for me. What I need is a surefire, rapid-fire rapid way of spotting my car out of the millions scattered all over the metropolis area. Elsewhere, later that afternoon, a shift up the eastern seaboard brings us a change of scene and the skyline of a markedly different city. Gotham City, home base for the caped crime fighters Batman and Robin, who apparently can't be bothered stopping a bunch of bank robbers from robbing a bank in a stolen car because a bunch of bank robbers rob a bank and then flee to a stolen car where they get the surprise of their lives. Superman has taken over for their wheelman, saying, Don't worry, boys. Your wheelman, Mickey, he's been locked safely in the trunk. And say hello to your new driver. At that point, the car goes full fucking airborne because apparently just by virtue of holding onto the steering column, Superman can make the entire son of a bitch fly. I shall repeat that. Superman, sitting in the driver's seat and really touching only the steering wheel, is somehow able to make this entire car fucking fly. And I mean like Jetsons fly. Just zipping around in the air like George Jetson. So, that I can fairly say is a superpower I did not know that Superman has. Now, if memory serves, I forget the exact issue, but fairly early on in the Burn Age, Superman did something kind of, sort of similar to this, where he piloted a spaceship by sticking his fist through the floor and basically using his psionic ability to fly to power and then steer the spaceship. So, I, I've always been of, the, been of the idea that this is a superpower that John Byrne kind of created for his reboot of Superman. He basically wanted to know how it is that not only can Superman fly, but how is Superman able to do just crazy things? Like, um, catch a, catch a falling airplane. Because when you think about it, the airplane should fall to pieces in his hand, unless he's got some kind of telekinesis that would hold the airplane together in his hands and keep it from falling to pieces. And so that was kind of the concept that John Byrne was working with. And like I say, the assumption that I always made was that this is something that he created for his version of Superman. But then you read stuff like this and you can't, and you really can't help thinking there was some amount of precedent that he was working off of. You know, this isn't a completely 
new concept that he came up with. He simply codified something that he thought was implicit to Superman for quite a while there. So there's a there are a couple of different ways of looking at that. It's just, again, this is something that would have been kind of weird had it been drawn by by Kurt Swan. But Kurt Schaffenberger can just, he can make it work somehow. You know, this sort of ridiculous idea of Superman sitting in the driver's seat of a car and somehow flying the car through midair, he's still able to do that somehow. And like I say, Kurt Swan, or sorry, Kurt Schaffenberger makes that work in a way that I don't know that Kurt Swan would have been able to. So again, I'm not smack talking Kurt Swan because he's my favorite Superman artist of all time. I'm just saying that the guy, he wasn't necessarily capable of doing everything. He had strengths and talents, but he also had some weaknesses. And there's an argument that places where Kurt Swan was weak are places where Kurt Schaffenberger is rather strong and talented. So, again, it's not a matter of one being better than the other. Or if it is, I kind of have to come down on Kurt Swan's side. I'm just saying this is something that I think Schaffenberger could make work better than could Kurt Swan. That's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So... Anyway, get back in the story, though. Sometime later in the Metropolis apartment of Mr. and Mrs. Clark Kent, Lois says, let me get this straight. You tracked down our car with Super Scent? And Clark replies, yep, that's right. I figured there'd be a residue of your Roman Knight's perfume clinging to the car. To which Lois replies, but... There must be thousands of women wearing the same scent. How could you possibly single out mine? And Superman replies, there was one other scent, Lois. The unmistakable scent of a new car. And no two cars smell exactly alike. My left nostril zeroed in on your perfume. My right nostril on the sedan's unique scent. A trail which led me to Gotham City and a bank robbery. Now... This is one of those things where I think Kurt Schaffenberger may have... He either overly simplified this or he overly complicated it, depending on how you look at it. There is another aspect of all of this that Kurt... Or sorry, that uh, Carrie Bates could have remarked upon, and that is everybody has their own unique body chemistry. And so when you put on any kind of perfume or cologne... The basics of it will stay the same, but it will interact differently with your body, for example, than it would mine, because my body chemistry is different from yours. And if you've ever been around people who are wearing the same cologne, one of the things you might notice is that, yeah, you can recognize the same that it's the same scent that they're both wearing, but at the same time, they're still somehow different from each other, you know? They don't smell exactly the same. One of them won't smell like the other, is what I'm saying. And that might have been a kind of useful addition to this story, where Superman, basically using Lois Lane's perfume and the way that it interacted specifically with her body chemistry, used that to track down the stolen car. And when you think about it, that's no more... 
far-fetched than using one nostril for one scent and the other nostril for another scent. One is about as logical as the other, to me. At least as logical. So, anyway. So Lois replies, okay, okay, now, please tell me about the tape. Did my big mouth get recorded or not? To which Superman replies, I'm afraid so, Lois, and... Moreover, those robbers played the tape, but... Before you break out the morning clothes, listen to this. Apparently the crooks pushed the record button after they played the tape. And Clark plays a, or Superman plays a, a recording saying, <laughs> Did you hear the way that dame gushed over her husband? The other guy says, Yeah, calling him a man of steel, a Superman at home. And the first guy says, Why, the 97 pound... The guy's probably a 97-pound weakling who wears glasses and can't even stand up in a stiff wind. So the second guy says, Yeah, no wonder they say love is blind. The end. And that's the thing about Superman's secret identity that I don't know that comic book writers are always sensitive to. First off, these are, these are crooks who... Basically, they don't have any, they don't have a reason to believe that Lois was being literal when she called her husband Superman. And so, because of that, they just thought it was sort of pillow talk between Lois and Clark when, no, she was telling God's honest truth. But this is something that I don't know that a lot of writers ever really stop to think about, you know, that... Basically, most people have no reason... It seems to be common knowledge in Metropolis that Superman has a secret identity, but nobody has a reason necessarily to suspect that it's Clark. So that's one of the things about this that kind of works for me, that you know you could get away with, if, if you were so inclined, a little bit of misdirection on that. And so just... Anyway, overall, this is just another nice, fun Mr. and Mrs. Superman story. And one of the things that... Both of these stories seem interested in doing is basically showing the formation of Superman and Lois as a team, you know? And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm a pretty big fan of Lois and Clark, and starting especially in the third season. You could fairly well describe Lois as a sort of active co-conspirator you know, in creating Superman, in guiding Superman. And it's strange to think, you know, number one, that's an eff just a really fucking effective way of telling the story. But number two, it's got precedent at least as far back as Mr. and Mrs. Superman, where from this moment on, the Superman and Lois of Earth 2 truly are in it together. And... This is, my just God's honest opinion is that Mr. and Mrs. Superman is, it's incredibly underrated in terms, not just in terms of the quality of the stories, although there's that, but also just how influential these stories have been, you know? I think that you could draw a pretty straight line between, the, and it'll take you right from at least starting from Mr. and Mrs. Superman to 
goings on. I, I would say between Lois and Clark, between those two starting in, in, in the comics in the early 90s, and then Lois and Clark, the TV show, and then latter-day Smallville going right on through to Man of Steel up to today. There's a, to me, there's a very clear progression to all of that. And I think there's a logical argument that what we saw in Man of Steel is really this type of concept of Lois and Clark as a team, that being taken to the nth degree, you know? The logical conclusion where Lois is now in on the ground floor of Clark becoming Superman. And that plays for me. So, and the other thing, like I say, is just the sort of 1950s sort of milieu that this story takes place in. I like the idea of a sort of elder statesman Superman existing in the 1950s and settling down, getting married, and, you know, who knows, maybe someday having some kids or something. You know, it's just, that's the kind of thing that I look forward to in reading these stories. You know, Superman, on the one hand, still dealing with the criminal underworld, but doing so within the context of being newlyweds with Lois. That, I don't know why, but those two things don't cancel each other out for me, you know? And anyway, just really enjoyable, lots of fun, love this story, both of these stories, in fact, all three of these stories. So, like I say, go out there, get these stories. I think these back issues can be had for, honestly, not all that much money. You can get Action Comics number 484, Superman number 327, and Superman number 329. I should assume for less than 10 bucks. I mean, you may pay 10 bucks or maybe a little bit more with sales tax, but basically 10 bucks, I'm thinking is the most this is going to set you back. You know, you've you've bought more expensive but less entertaining comics than these, I can assure you. So, anyway, satisfaction guaranteed. Really love this stuff, and I don't know when, but the the time is going to come when I talk more about Mr. and Mrs. Superman in the future, but that day isn't today, so there you have it. I think that's pretty much it for me this week, so bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. 
You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.